So, how many kids do we got here this morning? Can you guys raise your hands? Big, tall, above those big, tall people in front of you. All right. Uh, so, today, kids, uh, we're talking about the Bible uh, and about how it's God's Word, that it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and that it uh, pierces deeply within us. And so, I want to start by asking you guys some questions. So, the first question is, what are these right here? Are you sure about that? Bibles, books. What's the difference between a book and a Bible? Bibles are bigger. That's a great answer. Okay, so Bible is more important. And other books are fairy tales. So, here's another question. What is your favorite book? The Bible. Great answer, Solomon. What do you got, Dinah? What? Oh, okay. Her favorite story in the Bible is when Jesus dies. Not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. What about your favorite book outside the Bible? Caleb, what do you got? The whole story of the Bible. All right. Apparently, parents are doing a great job reading the Bible to their kids. Yeah. What do you got? 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's a great book. How about you? Okay, what's it called? Eternity? Cool. What about you, Drew? Captain Underpants. Joshua. Can somebody help me out with that one? Awesome. What do you got, Dinah? What? Gingerbread Man. Okay. Ninjago. Awesome. All right. I want to share with you guys some of my favorite books. And... I like books. I have a lot of books at my house. I like to read books. And so when, most of the time when people ask me what my favorite book is, I'll ask them, like, what, what kind of book do they want to know? And so my favorite fiction book is this book right here. It's called Fahrenheit 451. And it's about firemen that instead of putting out fires, they start them. And they start them to burn books to keep people from reading. So it's a pretty good story. Here's another one. This one is kind of tricky, right? Because it says Bible on it. The barbecue Bible. But if you read this, there's nothing about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Uh, it's all about ribs and hamburgers and steaks, which are delicious. Uh, and here's this other one, which this isn't one I read often, but it's called The Black & Decker's Complete Guide to Home Wiring. This is what keeps you from dying when you start messing with electricity. So, the question is, what's different about these books and the Bible? Right? Who wrote these books? One person. One person. So we got Ray Bradbury, we got Stephen Raiklin, and uh, we got Black and Decker. <laughs> Who wrote the Bible? Yes. Hundreds of people and Jesus. Which one's the right answer? Seems like it would be. Both. Both. That's right. It was written by hundreds of people, and it was written by God himself. Okay, what about, uh, are these stories true? Is this story a true story? It's a fiction book. So does that mean it's true or not? No, right? Someone just made it up. This guy named Ray made up the story. What about this one? Is this one true? It's a cookbook. It's about barbecue. What, what about the wiring book? Is this one true? Yeah, see, these are kind of harder. What about the Bible? Is the Bible true? Okay, great answer. Here's one more question. What happens if we don't do what these books say? It's like this fiction book, made-up story. What happens if I don't do what it says? 
What? I'll live, right? I'll be fine. I'll be normal. What happens if I, let's say, want to make some sturgeon kebabs? Read the book. Read the book and listen to it. What happens if I don't? What if I don't follow the recipe? So this recipe calls for... A horrible dinner. That's probably right, right? If I take out this onion and put in uh, like a piece of dirt. Yeah. A bucket of worms. Like that would make bad kebabs. So, but still, a bad dinner, like that happens, right? Sometimes. Sometimes you have a bad dinner. It's not the end of the world. What if I don't follow the instructions in this book? That's exactly right. Right? If I don't follow the instructions and start messing with electricity, I'm probably going to die or hurt myself or someone else. What about the Bible? What happens if I don't do what the Bible says? I'm not going to live forever in heaven. What else? I'll die. What else? I'll go to hell. Yeah, this, this book is different than any other book, right? It's written not just by a person. It's not just a made-up story. It's the truth. And like you've said, it's written by a lot of different authors, and it's also written by God himself. And it tells us the story of who he is, of what he's done for us. And it also tells us what the consequences are if we don't do what it says. If we don't trust in Christ, if we don't place our faith in him, then, like you guys have said, we won't live forever, but instead we'll go to hell. Uh, will bear bad consequences for not following the instructions in this book. Um, it also tells us about Jesus who came and died in our place and who followed all of the instructions perfectly because he knew that we couldn't, right? There are things in this book that we're not going to do perfectly. But because of who Jesus is and what he's done, he uh, obeys it perfectly for us. And so we get to go to heaven if we place our faith in him, uh, even though we don't follow the instructions perfectly. Um, but still, because of who he is and what he's done, our response to him is one where we try to do what he says uh, so that we can please him. Um, and the reason why we do that is because he knows us. He knows what we do, what we don't do. He knows how well we obey him or not. And so uh, we want to please him by giving a response to the grace he's shown us in Christ. And so, uh, kids, I would encourage you to... Uh, not just make your parents read you good books, but also make them read you the Bible uh, and tell you its stories because it's the story that's better than any other story. And it's the book that matters more than any other books. Uh, and parents, if you're not doing that, uh, start doing it. It's really easy. Um, and if you've got questions on what it looks like to read the Bible with your kids and talk to your kids about the Bible, there are like a gazillion parents here who are trying to do the same thing. So just look around and find someone that's got kids running around beside them, and they probably have some of the same kind of questions you do. So uh, we want to be parents who are reading the Bible to our kids because it's the book that's better than any other book, even you know the, the ones that are our kids' favorite that they're excited about reading. So do that because as we're going to see today, it's a book that is different for us as well. So we'll start by reading our passage this morning. It's going to be Hebrews uh, chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, even though we're just kind of focusing on the tail end of the passage this morning. Again, that's Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Therefore... While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were united by faith with those who listened. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. 
Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And that your word teaches us about your word. That it tells us that your word is alive. That it's active and effective. That it searches us out and knows us better than we know ourselves. God, we thank you that you, in some ways, made this book like you so that we could know more about who you are and what you've done for us and know more about who we are and what our responsibility is as your people. God, we pray this morning that you would increase our affection for you you would increase our affections for Christ and the grace that you've shown us in him and that you'd increase our affection for your word that you've given us as a gracious gift. We pray that as you do that, that you would also increase our desire to obey. That we would know that the word challenges us and convicts us and calls us to an obedience that we must strive after. We pray by your Spirit this morning that you would help us to do that together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to say before we get into this passage is that last time we were in Hebrews, it was I think before Easter, so it's been a while, uh, but we talked about verses 1 through 11. We talked about this idea of entering God's rest. And after I preached that sermon, someone kind of brought it to my attention that uh, in my preaching, I emphasized kind of one side of the coin more than the other. And so I talked about how we're supposed to enter God's rest. And there's a kind of a present experience of that now, but ultimately there's kind of a future final rest that we're waiting for. And so in the sermon, in the application, I talked a lot about how we kind of participate in and partake of that rest now. But what I didn't do, as I intended to, was to talk about how the rest later is what really matters. That's what we're really after. That's what we should really desire. And so I wanted to just kind of, before we get into this passage today, say that and say, the rest that we experience now only serves to say, hey, there's a better rest coming. And so don't think the resting in God now is the end or what we should be after or desire. It's just a picture. It's like the Lord's Supper, right? We take the Lord's Supper to celebrate the kind of future feast we will have in the new heavens and the new earth. But that's not the feast, right? If that's the feast, I'm disappointed. Because oyster crackers aren't that good. It's a small, small, small taste of what's coming. And so we want to experience rest in God now, but more than that, we want to long for and press into and desire and look for the rest that's coming. So hear that on the end of that sermon you heard a month ago. Connect those in your mind. And that also helps kind of lead in to where we're at today. So we're in verses 12 through 13. The main point for us this morning as we talk about God's Word is that God's Word is powerful and effective. It brings life and obedience, but it also condemns 
disobedience. God's word is powerful and effective. It brings life and obedience, but it also condemns disobedience. That's what we're going to see in these two verses as we walk through them. And so, our focus is on verses 12 and 13, where it says the word of God is sharper, uh, it's living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And these are verses that we're probably pretty familiar with. Right? We've probably heard them more than once. We've probably heard them multiple times. Some of you may even have these verses memorized. Right? If someone asks you about the Bible, you might be able to say, yeah, the, the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces deeper uh, than anything else. It divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow. You might be able to kind of call these verses to mind and say, this is, this is what the Bible's like. Um, but... I don't think that many of us, and I would even put myself in this camp before this week, have considered these verses in the context of Hebrews, of what the author is using these verses to teach us about God's Word, about how he's connecting them to the rest of this argument that we've been going through where he's talking about how Jesus is better than anything else. And so today, that's what I want us to do. I want us to kind of take how we've thought about these verses in the past and just kind of throw it out. And instead, say, what is the author telling us about God's Word in the context of this passage? Because this isn't just some kind of generic, systematic statement about what God's Word is. Uh, he's connecting these statements to an argument that he's been making that we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews up to this point. He's telling us something very specific about them. So look down at verse 12, if you would. He says, for the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and the intention of the heart. What's the first word in verse 12? Or, right there, the author of Hebrews is telling us, I'm connecting what I'm about to say to what I have just said. So if we want to know what he's saying, we've got to go back, we've got to read verse 11. He says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. The word therefore in verse 11 is connecting it back to everything he said in uh, verses 1 through, uh, or 1 through 10 of chapter 4. We're not going to go back to that because in Hebrews there's so many of these we would end up at the beginning of the book and this would take forever. He's saying... Because of this thing he's told us about how the promise of God's rest still stands, about how the wilderness generation failed to enter it because of disobedience, let us, therefore, because of that story, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one falls by the same sort of disobedience. So we're supposed to strive to enter that rest. We strive to enter that rest by placing our faith in Christ and by responding to his grace with obedience. That's how we strive to enter that rest. And we do that again and again and again and again until we finally enter that rest. And the reason, or the, not the reason, the purpose why we do that, he tells us in verse 11. So that, this is the purpose of this striving, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And the words no one there, or, or no one there, are, are just what we talked about when we went through chapter 3. He's drawing attention to the fact that it could be anyone. Everyone has the possibility of falling by disobedience and unbelief. So he's very clear when he goes through chapter 3 of saying, take care lest there be in any one of you, in any of us, an unbelieving heart, so that no one falls in disobedience. And that's what he's saying here. Strive, all of you strive, so that no one falls in disobedience. The purpose of the striving is so that no one falls. And then comes verse 12. Four. This is the reason why we don't want to fall in disobedience. You strive so that you don't fall, and you don't want to fall because, verse 12, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is the reason we don't want to fall. So it's answering that question, these verses. It's not just some isolated statement about the word of God. He's telling us that this book will condemn us if we fall in disobedience. So let's look at these verses and see exactly what it is that they're telling us about this Word of God. The first thing they tell us is what it is. It is the Word of God. The reason why it matters, the reason why it's significant is because of whose Word it is. Right? Anytime we communicate with anyone, 
whether it's over the phone, whether it's in person, whether it's an email, whether it's in a text message, we assign priority to that communication. Right? If you're on the phone with the pizza guy and your wife calls you, hopefully you're going to switch over and answer her call. Especially if you know she's like, you know, out driving around or something and something could have happened. She's across the room and she's calling you, you know, she's just trying to irritate you while you're trying to order a pizza. <laughs> or if you're with, you know, your boss and uh, his boss calls him, he's probably going to pick up the phone and talk to his boss. We assign priority in communication. Some people's word is more significant and more important to us than others, right? I know that kind of sounds mean. That's just the way the world works. That's the way we work. Everybody's important. Everybody's significant. But some people are more important, more significant. (laughs) And because it's God's word, this word right here, we know it's going to be different than the word of anyone else because anyone else is not God. Only he is. So his word is going to be significant. That tells us that this speech that we're going to receive in this book that we're reading, not just Hebrews, but the rest of the Bible, is different than any other thing we're going to get. It's because it's his book. He's the source. He's its author. And if the author is trustworthy, if the author has authority, the author can punish us for disobedience, then we know it's someone that we want to listen to. And because we know he's our creator, we know that this is a book that we should not take lightly. Tells us more about the author in verse 13. So we're going to skip down to verse 13, then we're going to come back to verse 12. He says, And no creature is hidden from his sight. So in verse 12, he's talking about the word of God. In verse 13, he's talking about God. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He makes two things about God very clear to us in this verse. The first is that everything, Everything is laid bare before him. Nothing, no one, no thing, not even a single thing is hidden from his sight. God sees all, God knows all. Nothing lies outside of that. If I'm barbecuing and I don't follow the recipe, I don't get a phone call from Steve Rakeland saying, hey, why didn't you make those sturgeon kebabs the way I told you to? Because he has no idea. Right? If I'm not doing the wiring correctly, I don't get a call from Black & Decker saying, hey, you messed up on that circuit. The, they don't know that I'm using their book to do wiring. The only way they would find out is if I screwed up and sued them. And I'd probably be dead anyway, so I wouldn't get the chance. It doesn't work that way with this book. Right? When God tells us to do things like go and make disciples... He knows our response, not just our outward response, whether or not we do it physically. He knows what we're thinking in the moment we read those verses or hear someone say that command. He knows the deep down emotions we have when we hear it. He knows our response to it in ways we don't know our response to it. Nothing is hidden from his sight. All are exposed before him. So the first thing is that everything is laid bare before him and nothing is hidden from his sight. If we disobey him, if we don't strive towards obedience, he knows. The second thing that verse 13 makes clear about God is that he not only sees everything, but he's the one to whom we must give an account. It kind of ratchets it up a little bit. It's one thing that he knows about. It's one thing that he sees it, but now we find out that he also forces us to give an account of why we haven't obeyed. So he sees our disobedience. He sees our maybe lack of obedience if we want to make ourselves feel a little bit better. And he tells us that we have to give an account. So he has authority over our disobedience. He judges it. He condemns it. We're accountable to him. The reason why the word of God matters is because it's his word. And he has... Complete knowledge. Infinite knowledge. And he's the one who has authority over all of us and all of our actions, even the ones we think are hidden. What we're going to see in the rest of verse 12 
is that because it's God's word, it's not an ordinary book and it doesn't behave like an ordinary book. He says the word of God is living and active, which is a strange way to describe someone's word. It's living. It's active. It does stuff. Things happen when it is spoken, when it is read, when we you know, look at it and study it. Things are affected by his word. It is living and active. So the first thing, it's living. We have proof of that right now. Right? God's word still exists. Because we're reading it today. We're talking about it. Right? There are entire companies that exist to publish and sell and disseminate God's Word. There are entire fields of study devoted to God's Word. Right? People travel around the world to translate the Bible into languages that it's not currently in. God's Word is living. Like, it's, it's alive. And we have proof because we're reading it right now. And more than that, more than the fact that it's here, the fact that we care what it says means that it's living. This book was written over 2,000 years ago. And somehow it's still relevant to my life today in 2016. It can instruct someone in 300 B.C. how to love their wife. And it can instruct someone in 1900 how to love their wife. And someone in 2016 had to love their wife. And someone in, you know, 2238, if we ever get to that point, how to love their wife. Probably do so in very shiny clothing. This book, it's not just still around, it's still relevant. It still applies, and it always applies, and it always will apply. It's living, and it's life-giving, and it's active. It, it does things. Right? You read this book, and it affects you. You can read other books, and they might not affect you as much. They might cause you to think. They might cause you to do things. They might cause you to change the way you do specific things. So if I read the wiring book, it's going to shape the way that I do wiring. But when I'm done with the wiring, I'm done with the book. Right? I don't think about it later in the day and think, you know, that single pole switch diagram really affects the way I should parent my children. It's gone. I'm done with it, and I don't think about it because it's closed and the book doesn't have any power over me. Last fall, at some point, I read this book called uh, 77 Days in September. It's a fiction book. And the story of the book is that there's this you know, world catastrophe, an EMP, and it kills all the electricity. And this guy, this husband, who I you know, identified with because I'm a husband, is away from his family on business. And he's got to go across the United States to get back to his family to kind of rescue them from this tragedy. And I'm like, absolutely, I would do that. And it messed with me because I began to think, like, am I prepared for something like this to happen? You know, I don't have stores of food in my basement. I don't have stores of water in my basement. I don't have a stockpile of ammunition. I'm not, I'm not ready to defend my family from, like, the worst apocalyptic scenario. And then I thought, wait a second. <laughs> This is a story. Sure, it's plausible. But I don't want to think about that stuff. So I'm not going to. And I stopped thinking about it. God's word doesn't work that way. It's not something that we are over. It's something that we are under. And so when we read this, we might be able to say, I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to do what it says but eventually it will place itself in authority over us. It will either lead us towards obedience by giving us life and empowering us to walk in obedience, or it will assert itself over us in judgment as it condemns our disobedience. Because it's God's word, and he's the one who speaks it, and he has the authority to do that to us. This book is different than any other book. The reason why is because when God says things, they happen. If we were to go back today, we could read Genesis 1-1 where it talks about creation. The way creation happens is through God's Word. He says, let there be light, and what happens? Light. 
He says, let there be creeping things that creep on the earth and creeping things start creeping on the earth. He says, let there be you know, an expanse between the waters above and the waters below and the, the waters somewhere else and whatever that means. And it happens. When God speaks, things happen. What about now? Right? What about right now, this moment? Who is keeping the earth spinning on its axis? Who is keeping gravity at just the right amount so that we don't all fly off into space or get smashed down into this planet? Who's keeping the sun burning at just the right temperature so that we don't all just go up in flames? Who does that? How does that happen? The answer is back in Hebrews 1.3. He says this. He says, He, talking about Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So how is the universe upheld right now? By God's word. Because he didn't just speak in the beginning. He didn't just speak in his word, but he's still speaking. He sustains everything through his word. Which is insane. That his word has that kind of power. And how are we described as Christians in relationship to creation? Talking about how God creates through his speech. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. We are new creation. Why? Why are we new creations? Because he said so. Because at some point, God spoke and we were brought from death to life. The old passed away, the new came. We were made again because God's speech creates. It does stuff. It affects things. It puts off our sin and puts on Christ's righteousness. Not because of us, not because of something we do, but because of his speech, because of his word, because he said this is the way it should be. What he says happens and no one can thwart his plan. No one can stop him from acting when he decides to. God's word is living and active because he is. Look at what he tells us next about God's word. He says the word of God is living and active. Next, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and of marrow. The word of God is described as a sword. It's also described as a sword in Ephesians and Revelation. And in most cases, when the word of God is described as a sword, it's not, you know, so it's a weapon we can use to like hurt people or even defend ourselves. It's describing the fact that the word of God is a, I mean, judgmental is not the right word because it sounds bad. But the word of God judges things because it's okay for God to judge things because he is the judge. For example, in Revelation, it says this. This is John writing, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is a highly poetic passage in a highly poetic book. But the point for us this morning is that when it describes the word of God, it describes it as a sword which is used in judgment on the enemies of God, on those who disobey. And judgment is the idea that's expressed in Hebrews 2. Although it's a little different. It's not the same. It's not just to strike down God's enemies. It's to discern between right and wrong, between obedience and disobedience. So he says that it pierces, this sharp two-edged sword, it pierces the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow. So if we want to know what it means that it pierces our soul and spirit, we need to know what it means to pierce joint and marrow. So what is a joint? 
What? Connects two bones. So where's a joint at? It's on the end of the bone, right? My knee joint is up here at the end of my leg bone. Like there's a song here somewhere. (laughs) And where's the marrow? Inside the bone. So if someone takes a sword and they divide your joint and your marrow, you're having a bad day. Very, very bad day, right? Those are things that do not happen in the normal course of life. So, in one sense, he's saying that this word, this sword divides things that aren't normally divided. I think that also fits with soul and spirit. We see these used interchangeably in Scripture. Uh, we're made up of a body and a soul, or a body and a spirit. We're not made up of a body and a soul and a spirit. They're the same thing in Scripture throughout. And so... The sword divides things that aren't normally divided. And I think there's more too, right? Because like we said, the joint is kind of at the end of the bone and the marrow is, is deep inside the bone. And so this sword pierces more deeply than any other. It can, co- it can divide what isn't normally divided and it can cut deeper than anything else. And as it pierces, he tells us it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Which is a really strange thing to say about a book. Right? There's a book on our shelves in our homes that knows our thoughts and our intentions. It searches us out. It pierces deeply to the heart. And it does this because as we saw in verse 13, it can because it's his word and no one is hidden from his sight. He knows our thoughts and our intentions. He knows them because he made them. He saw them corrupted by sin in the fall. He sees them today still corrupted by our sin and our flesh. But he knows how to operate on them. He knows how to cut them out of us so that what should be there can be there instead. He can divide soul and spirit and joint and marrow. The point of this passage is he's telling us about God's word and and what it does and what it's capable of is that we don't want to fall in disobedience because if we do, we'll be found out. If we do, then we'll be brought down with this double-edged sword. Or it can give us life. It can show us the way towards obedience. It can show us how to respond with faith and obedience and strive towards the rest that's promised us at the end. If we fall by the same sort of disobedience of the wilderness generation, then this sword is going to pierce us through. But if we respond and long for that rest that's promised us, then this word is going to show us how our thoughts and our actions and our intentions of our heart need to be changed to be brought into line with who God has called us to be in his word. God's word is living and active. It produces change. It's effective. It works on us even when we're not reading it. One thing I don't want to talk about is that like when it says that, it discerns our thoughts and our intentions. And when it says that you know, no creature is hidden from his sight, but we're all laid bare, that this idea of being exposed before God is either a terrifying thing or a liberating thing. Right? If we're outside of Christ, if we haven't trusted in him, then that should terrify us. Because the one who's going to judge Everyone knows everything about us. He knows every single way that we've disobeyed. He knows what we think. He knows the deepest, darkest thoughts and emotions that we have that we don't want anyone to ever know about us. He knows all the ways we fall short. He also knows all the good thing that we do with evil in us. He knows everything about us. And we're going to have to, the author of Hebrews tells us, give an account to him for all of that. If we're outside of Christ, if that is just on us, that should terrify us. 
Because we can't stand in that judgment. There's nothing we can say to please Him in that moment. There's no excuse, no argument, no logic. Because He knows everything. But if we're in Christ, if we've placed our faith in Him and our trust in Him for salvation, then this isn't terrifying. It might make us a little nervous. Right? We don't like the idea that someone knows everything about us. But the fact that He does know all of those things, even now, He knows when we respond poorly to the grace He's shown us in Christ. He knows when we still have those deep, dark thoughts, even though He's freed us from them. He knows everything about us. And yet, He accepts us and loves us because of what Christ has done for us. He takes all of those things, all of those things that we would have to give an account to Him for, and He puts them on Christ. And Christ pays the penalty for them. And instead, He gives us something else we have to give an account for which is the righteousness of Christ. It is much better for me and for you that instead of giving an account to God about everything we've done, we have to give an account to God about what Jesus has done for us. Like that's liberating. That's grace. That's something that we should be happy about. If we don't understand that, if we haven't come to grips with the fact that God counts Christ's life for us instead of our life for us, then we haven't really thought about what the gospel means. We haven't begun to let that affect the way we treat others, and we haven't even begun to think about what the gospel means. The fact that his obedience counts for ours and wipes out our disobedience is an incredibly gracious and liberating thing for us. His work counts for ours. God treats us as if we have lived in perfect obedience, even though we haven't. But, that doesn't mean that our obedience doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that our disobedience doesn't matter. Because even though He counts Christ's work for ours, He still desires us to grow in obedience to Him. He desires us to grow in purity and holiness. Later in Hebrews, the author is going to tell us that without holiness, no one sees the Lord. Without holiness, no one enters that rest. And so in some ways, Christ's holiness counts for ours, but in other ways, he calls us to strive towards holiness. And his word helps us do that. Because it doesn't just pierce and divide and judgment, it also does that to bring life, to bring obedience. So, when we, talk, when we think about the fact that it knows our thoughts and our intentions that were laid bare before him, this is where the fact that the word of God works this way becomes a very liberating, freeing thing and something that we should put ourselves under as often as possible. If you have to have surgery, right? if you go to the doctor and he says, hey, you've got a tumor in your stomach, would you rather have surgery with or without some sort of like x-ray, MRI, CAT scan, some sort of imaging? Do you want a doctor who knows this is exactly where it is, let me go in there and get it as cleanly as possible, or do you want a doctor who's like, hey, we'll just cut you open and dig around in there until we find it. No big deal. <laughs> you want someone that knows this is exactly where the cut needs to be made. I can make as small of an incision as possible and remove that because I know exactly where it is. I know exactly what needs to be done and exactly how it needs to be done. That's how the Word of God pierces us. He knows the broken parts. He knows the places in us in which are waiting to be made new by the grace that we have because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And as we put ourselves under this book again and again and again and under his authority, by the power of his spirit, he begins to cut those things out of us. And that is a gracious thing. That is a liberating thing. Because even though he's freed us from sin's power, we still allow ourselves to be enslaved by it. And he keeps cutting those chains for us. So the application this morning is to be in the Word. To read it. 
to study it, to meditate on it, to think about it, to memorize it, to do it again and again and again and again, and to keep doing it. Because this book is different than any other book, and so it's a book we need to be putting ourselves under. We need to do it regularly and consistently. And I know that with me saying that, our, our like legalism radar just went off. Right? I don't have to do something in order for God to be pleased with me. Christ has already done that. Can't tell me I've got to do this all the time. Can't tell me I have to do this. I don't have to do this to be a good Christian. I know. But do it. Right? It's not impossible to be a Christian who God is pleased with and not be someone that reads the Bible. But it's got to be really, 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 really hard. And sure, there are people on the other side of the world that don't have the Bible, but that's not us. We got one, we can read it, we can study it, we can meditate on it. And with that, because this book is different than anything else, that means Christian books, devotionals, sermons, you know, whatever else, those things don't count. Those are good. Read them, study them, learn from them, listen to them, whatever. But they're not the Bible. There's someone talking about the Bible. And even as I'm up here talking about the Bible, I don't have the authority this book has. This book has the authority. I can say what it says. To, uh, to close, before we talk about the Lord's Supper, um, I want to tell you a story from my favorite book, from Fahrenheit 451. There's this part of the story, and I don't think this spoils it if you want to read it. Um, but because all these books have been destroyed, what happened was that in order to protect them, there are a group of people that just memorized books. And there's a part where they're just, all the characters are kind of sitting around this campfire. And the main character is being introduced to the people that are there. And these people are introduced as the book that they've kind of memorized. And so there's like a guy who's like Shakespeare's sonnets, you know, or uh, War and Peace. And there's even some that are like the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. And like thinking about that, it'd be cool to have Shakespeare's sonnets memorized. You know, you could impress at parties and things like that by just rolling off a sonnet. But that's not going to shape you in the way that like having so much of God's Word in your head would. Imagining what that would do to you if you actually had like all of Mark just at your disposal. So you're at a traffic light, killing time. Instead of checking your phone for that two and a half seconds just in case you got a notification that you missed so you can respond to it before the light turns green, you could say, hey, I want to think about Mark chapter 4 and what happens there. And you could. Or in a situation in which something happens that you weren't expecting, instead of just you know, a movie line coming out of you or a song lyric coming out of you or, you know, something worse coming out of you. You've got the Gospel of Mark. You've got the book of Ephesians. You've got First Peter. You've got whatever you've spent your time studying so that it's in you instead of something that, oh, I can look at that when I get a chance. I can look at that when my season is less busy. Right? That book's there. It's on my shelf. But I've got to read these books for school right now. This book is different than any other book, and the reason why is because it affects us in a way that no other book can. Because when God speaks, things happen. And he's spoken to us in his word, and because of that, any time we want, we can listen to it. And so this week, do it. Often, ask each other about whether you have encourage each other to ask one another about what you're learning, what you've been reading, how God's teaching you, how God's growing you, how God's pushing you towards obedience and helping you resist disobedience. Talk about the word. Talk about the book that is different than any other book because it matters. Like we saw in chapter 3, our responsibility for resisting disobedience and growing in faith is not just something that's on us. It's on something that's on, it's something that's on all of us. We're all called to exhort one another. So exhort each other to read the Bible. Exhort each other with the Bible.
as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, I would encourage you just to to let the Word of God do what it's supposed to do. That by His Spirit, He would begin to point out things in you that only He can. That you would repent, maybe, of the ways in which you have neglected spending time in His Word, spending time listening to Him. Um, and even if you spend tons of time in the Word, that you would maybe repent of the ways in which you haven't done what it says, even though you know that you should. And then as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, just remind yourself that even though we continue to disobey, even though we don't perfectly live up to the standard that He set for us in His Word, we know that Christ has paid that for us. And because of that, we're not enslaved to sin, but instead are brought to life and empowered to walk in obedience. Pray that He would help you to keep pursuing holiness and purity even though you've already been redeemed. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Your Word is living and active. And that we are laid bare before You. But that because of Christ, we don't need to fear. But instead can be comforted that You will continue to right the wrongs in us. That You will continue to make us new and continue to put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ. God, I thank you that your word comes to pass. And that as we read it, we can see so much that has happened in accordance to your word. And we can have confidence that everything that you've promised will come true. So help us to strive to enter the rest that you promise is coming. And help us by your grace and your spirit and your word to avoid falling by the same kind of disobedience that we see in this passage. 